0: Layovers, your weekly dose of aviation innovation. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard from the flight deck, This is Paul Pobedimetria. And this is Alex Hunter. We'll be we the pilots for this podcast about the news, the startups, and the technologies defining the modern bird travel experience. This is a special flight which contains a full interview of Dan Hamilton, an air traffic controller at San Francisco airport. Uh, the flight time will be about 15 minutes, uh, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as Alex and I did. As we reach our cruising altitude, I'm going to turn off the passenger bell sign for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and let's turn on those noise-canceling headphones. Now to the uh, topic of the week. Topic of the week is actually an interview. I mean, an interview. Don't Top take it too seriously. Dan, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dan so uh, as you heard, ATC, which is really, really cool because it's, uh, it's a job that a lot of people have. You know, Either you become a pilot or you become an ATC. I mean, there's this kind of a mystery behind ATC. There's voices you can hear, even sometimes stream. But before we go on, because I know Alex has a few questions, I just want to ask you three very random and very basic questions uh, you answer however you want, Dan. Okay, and we first, should pre- we should preface this by saying that Dan's here to give his opinion and Yeah, this is, it- this is this is my opinion. Yeah, but the first one always oh, da- these are not dangerous ones. So how do you first is very simple. How do you fly? If you take a ply, do you have any quirks, anything special that you do that makes you stand out or not when you fly uh, commercially? <laughs> <laughs>
1: no. Not do you really. ever?
0: Do you ever fly commercially or do you fly? No, your I, own I plane? do.
1: We don't I don't get any special privileges or any benefits or anything like that for working for the FAA. Oh, that's interesting. The the FAA considers that a conflict of interest. Sure. So the only thing that I can do is get through security at San Fran because I work there bag. and I got my ID. Oh, other wow. than, other other yeah, other than that, when I go to other airports, when I go to Washington, a- anywhere else I travel, I still gotta take my shoes off. Right. I still gotta I don't
2: Do you have a favorite airline? Or, 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 an airline you, you hate. Are we talking least? about flying or working? Yeah. Well, yeah, like when, when you're, when you're, <laughs> oh, bo- wow, yeah. <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> that's <laughs> actually, yeah. When you're booking your, when you're booked, you know, be it for recreation, <clears throat> when you go out to Hawaii or whatever, you know, do you look to, to, are you loyal to a particular airline or I, is it just.
1: I'm, I'm, you know, I grew up flying United.
2: Um,
1: i and due to the fact that United has such a large presence at SFO, oh, I mean, you know, everyone needs to keep in mind San Fran or at San Fran, United basically owns half the airport. Mm. Half of the airport is literally for United. Mm. We're we're, they're a, we're a major hub for United. And that um, makes sense. With, yeah. With the roots. um that that I usually travel. I mean, if it's going to Vegas, sometimes I'll hop on Virgin America because I mean they're cool. Because they're great. Line. Yeah, they're just fun. <laughs> you know, and and at the end of the day, I, it doesn't really bother me who I take. It it's all about who's got the most reasonable price. Yeah.
0: You know? Yeah, we often we often say that it's no matter a lot yeah. of the innovation and blah blah blah. At the yeah. end of the day, people are still price sensitive, right? So yeah, maybe. Uh, do you have any? Great memory of a flight that stands out in your memory, something either as a kid or later on that really was different from others. It could be a positive story as a negative one. Do you have anyone that's uh, any story that stands out? (laughs) You know, oddly enough, I don't. I I mean, I've, I've, I've
1: just been, I've been... I've been working in the business for so long. Like I don't, you know, I'll talk to Alex and Alex will get all giddy and excited (laughs) about certain things, but it's different when, at least for me, it's different because I I work in the industry. So the things that you guys are fascinated by and the things that like everything we were talking about earlier with Google flights and everything, I haven't even seen Google flights. You know, I I really haven't. I mean, I've been doing it for so long. I love flying. Um, I love aviation It's a love-hate relationship with aviation though you know because it's it's a it's a tough industry kind of like everything we've talked about today so far it's it's just such a dynamic business and you know there's so many people that go on the media and they talk about things and they don't know what they're talking about and then everybody wants to do everything fully
0: automated and people just don't it's so complex
2: Mm. so maybe
0: maybe that that, that, you give you give me like a a good shoe in for the third part if there was one single thing you would change, whether it's industry in the plane, whatever, if there's one thing you could really, uh, let's pretend you had the power to change it. What would it be? Would you just have less uh, less people with bad opinions on TV or is there <laughs> actually something for I, the I think, industry? Uh,
1: honestly, in, in light of everything that's happened between Malaysian and uh, the German wings thing, and even Air France, mm. um, all that, when you start talking about accidents... The number one thing I would change is who actually gets in front of the TV camera and talks to the public because the public doesn't know. And all they do is trust the people who talk on TV and half the people that talk on TV are idiots. Half. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no, there are educated people out there. I mean, you've got people that used to be the head of the NTSB investigation team. I mean, there are some highly qualified people out there, but then there are people who get in that say that they are the, their chief aviation correspondent or aviation expert, and they don't even use the right phraseology when mm, they talk on, in front of, you know, and the public doesn't know, you know, and I'm sitting there like when, uh, I know we're gonna talk about this in a little bit, when the Asiana incident happened at San Francisco. Mm. There's people that are getting on the news and they're not even using the correct phraseology, which I know to some people, it doesn't make a difference in the big picture, but from somebody who works in the industry, I'm sitting here and i'm going bald pulling my hair out right you know what I mean because it's like you guys think you know you know you're you're telling the general public everything and and the general public doesn't know what it takes to fly an airplane they don't know how airplanes fly it's all magic yeah you know to
0: to, to a Is large it magic I don't know. it's magic
1: because <laughs> sometimes I'm surprised by the stuff I see but you know
0: <laughs> do you do you still think uh, you said magic do you still think that people consider the airline industry as something magical because that's a lot it seems to be lost a little bit I, 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 not magical, you know, I'm not going into, no, I I think
1: that, um, I think that with some of the decisions that have been made and some of the negative press and, and the high prices mm -hmm. to certain things, I think that the, the, the aviation industry is a tough business, but I think they're taking a real hit. Yeah. It's just, it's, you know, everybody needs to keep in mind, aviation used to be a way that the wealthy would travel. Yeah. It was luxury. Yeah, I absolutely right? agree. It was yeah. luxury. Yeah, and now it's another form of mass transit. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I'm not saying that that's bad.
2: No, it's it's you kind know of democratized. But I, I have bit. been
1: told by certain um by certain people that I've met in the airline industry over time that there are certain airlines that could care less about the people. The airlines make their money off cargo, mm. and if they could take out rows of seats and put boxes in, they would.
2: Yeah. You know, which is so depressing. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I, I don't know. It, it's it's kind of a love hate thing, in my opinion. Right. And, and I'll openly admit to people, I have kind of a tainted view just because I've seen so much and I've been around it for so long. Things that, you know, my, uh, some people listening to this, they may look at me and they may, you know, write in with
2: their concerns and tell me I'm wrong. And cool. I'll come on the show well, again. Let's talk about I, I it. Bring in it, your questions. <laughs> I think, yeah. And actually that's a good point. If you, you do know. have any questions for Dan, you know how to get in touch with us on, on Twitter and Facebook and email. But, you know, I think Paul and I would agree that, you know, you look at the, te- the industry that we're in, which, you know, we loosely refer to as the technology industry and you do get frustrated and upset with it. And people look at, look at things like, in my case, Uber, which I, I do think is great. Be like, come on, this is ridiculous. But other people are looking at it, going, "Wow, this is utterly yeah. amazing." You, you know, you, you do get burnt out with it, so I can I can understand yeah. that. So uh, actually, to, you, to yeah, answer your
1: question, the long winded way, uh, or, or the shorter version, now I don't really have any flights that were really memorable to me. I mean, I, I've been, you know, I've been in smaller airplanes that have been struck by lightning, <laughs> and
2: yeah. that's not memorable. Yeah,
1: I was flying with my father once, and we got hit by lightning, um, <laughs> severe turbulence. You know, wake turbulence from a seven five. I mean, I mean, and you were in a uh, Kinger,
2: Kinger, yeah, yeah. Wow. I've seen a lot of good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I'm interested in moving on to kind of, you know, you like you said at the beginning of the show, you've been a controller at San Francisco for four years. I have. Um, walk us through a day. Like, what is a what does a normal day look like? What are the hours? What what are the responsibilities? The, our, our,
1: everything that we do, it's uh, federally mandated, so we cannot work more than ten hours a day. We cannot work more than two hours on position without at least a 20-minute break. Oh, interesting. And we have to have at least one span of 24 hours off in a week. So essentially, we can work six-day weeks. We can work 10-hour days, but that's the most we can do. Right. There are certain facilities, depending on the staffing, certain facilities have 10-hour shifts and you work uh, four times. Okay. We don't have that at San Fran. We had it last year. Some people wanted it. And then our staffing kind of changed because in air traffic, <clears throat> people move around a lot. So you'll get people, yeah. Move around cities. Um, move oh. around airports. I see. I see. So, so
0: basically. Um, but, but why is that? Is it because they want to, or is it because it, it's mandated to do so?
1: No, it, because people want to, you know, certain people, certain, certain facilities have been known historically as homestead facilities. San Fran was one of those facilities. But now that you've got uh, younger controllers coming in, you know, uh, I work with one guy that wants to get back to New Orleans Mm. and he bid or he's going he's going back to New Orleans. Right. You know, there's other people that have been on Hawaii. I mean, coming from San Fran, um, you got a pretty good chance that you'll probably get picked up anywhere that you
0: that you want to go so what why is that is that because san fran is such a well massive what, airport or? from
1: what from what i was told when i got to san fran
0: um to put it into perspective
1: what las vegas does with five thousand acres san fran does with 500. wow and and that's that's a general i i'm not sure what the exact size of the of the las vegas airport is but at, at san fran we're doing we, we run a lot of traffic out of a very tight area
2: how many movements a day
1: I think right now we're averaging about twelve or thirteen hundred a day. That's extraordinary. Each aircraft is considered
2: a movement, and um, and if you're not familiar with San Francisco Airport, it has crossing two two sets of crossing runways. Yeah. So, which always and you know, as much as I've grilled Dan about it in the tenure of our relationship, <laughs> still blows my mind that there is a plane landing on one runway and one taking off. About yeah. to take off on one that that, cut, that intersects it. It's just the most expensive. It's
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, like I mentioned, I, I was out in Washington for some business and stuff for the FAA and the union at times. And I go out there and to me, it's like I told Alex when we were talking last night having a beer. To me, it's just a job. Like what I do is what I do. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not some miracle worker type. You know, like I don't I don't put myself on a pedestal or anything like that. But from an outsider's perspective, yeah, I guess it is pretty unique. And I've been to Washington and I've had people come up to me and literally say, wow, you run traffic at San Fran. Uh. And apparently from what I'm learning and I didn't know this prior, but it's people at San Fran are pretty highly respected. I mean, we've got the runway center lines are less than 1500 feet apart. I was told that if you run, if we're landing on two runways that are parallel. If we're landing two 747 side-by-side, side, there's less than 500 feet from wingtip to wingtip. Wow.
2: You know? And it's cool. really cool to be able to look out of the window, <clears throat> or cool I mean, cool slash terrifying, to look out the window of the plane that you're flying on to see a plane landing right next yeah. to you. If you
1: look close enough, you can see the heads of the Are
2: people. Other people like going up with the same <laughs> expression on it's, their face. You know,
1: and then the pilots who come in, I'd say 90% of them, they know the show. They know, they know what we're doing. Right. You know, and, and anybody, any pilot, you know, on their route, part of the, part of the pilot, part of the crew resource standpoint of flying is, you know, sometime between the time that they take off and the time that they're on approach to San Fran, they're looking at the approach plate and they're looking at the runway or the airport diagram. So they're going to look and they're going to say, okay, those runways are pretty tight together. Like
2: it's kind of common sense. Yeah. I can't imagine it's in a very easy airport to fly into because not only do you have the complexity of the airport itself, but within... What, 20 miles as the crow flies? You have two other major airports yeah. in, in Oakland and in San Jose who are also very busy uh, yeah. all day. Yeah. So I kinda, it must be a complicated airspace. How the San Francisco Tower, mm-hmm. what's its jurisdiction, I suppose? When basically, do you pick up an basically airplane? Basically,
1: we have the surface to uh, 2,000 feet, I believe. You guys caught me on vacation. So little, <laughs> I like turned off the work mode. It's basically the surface to th- 2,000 feet and we have a seven mile radius within the airport. So the way it works is if it's if it's within seven miles radius of us, we're talking to them.
2: Okay. And then... So let's say I, my flight that came in last Tuesday mm-hmm. uh, from London. Uh, how would I have c- come from the top of my descent to land at San Francisco and get to the gate?
1: What you do is... Um, we've got, so there's three different facilities basically within the U S there's in route facilities, approach and departure facilities and approach and departures one. And then you've got terminal terminal of the towers. So basically if you're coming in, eventually you're going to talk to Oakland center and their jurisdiction is, I think like Mount Shasta to Santa Barbara and damn near Salt Lake city. Wow. It's, it's somewhere right out in the middle of, uh, of uh, Nevada, I believe. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not a radar controller, so I'm going off of what I've experienced when I was flying.
2: So you would talk to them as you enter so that airspace. You
1: would talk to them as you enter that airspace. And then as you get closer to San Francisco and you start descending, then you start talking to the approach and departure facilities, respective to whether you're taking off or, you know, and, and one controller will work from what I've been told. And the, and the, the two times that I've been up to NorCal approach, which is up in Sacramento, if you're uh, working departure or approach it's actually just it's still one controller right and that's divided up into sectors and it gets convoluted and stuff but basically depending on where you are and what altitude you're at that's going to define
2: who you're talking to so norcal approach will take all the traffic that's converging on the bay area and sort it out and then hand it over to it
1: starts the sorting process with oakland center okay because all the arrival routes everything's standardized right so you have standard arrival routes they're called stars and the standard arrival routes will put you on the route that you need to take and then they for the airport, yeah, that, you're for going the airport to. that you're going to. And then those guys get funneled to NORCAL and then in turn get funneled to us. So by the time you're talking to me, you're probably no more than a 12-mile final.
2: Okay, that's really So sometimes
1: about 12 miles out, they'll switch them over to us and then we talk to them all the
2: way in. So for those of you that have flown into San Francisco, which I'm sure many of you have, especially from, from Europe. Usually, what you'll do is you'll come in from the north because you're coming from northern Canada, Hudson Bay, and you'll fly down and you'll overfly the airport, mm-hmm. and then you'll you'll do the U-turn over the San Mateo Bridge. Who is giving the instruction to turn? That's NorCal. That's and then as soon as you you're you're lined yeah. up on the runway, then as soon as you they have uh, at
1: San Fran, we got a bunch of different approaches. But depending, basically, once you're established on the approach, they'll frequency change you over to us, which is sometimes it's 12 miles. Sometimes it's five miles. Five miles is about the San Mateo Bridge.
2: Right.
1: And um, if you go on Google Maps, you can see the San Mateo Bridge. So basically, usually, depending on the approaches that we're running, sometimes they'll frequency change them to us further in. But that's only when we're, when the visibility is poor, and and it's NORCAL's responsibility to maintain the separation. Right. Once they, you know, there's basically certain handoff points depending on the approach that we're using. Well, they'll ship them over to us, and then we'll clear them to land. Or
2: and so you, so stuff. you, you, you go from the approach frequencies to you, mm-hmm. you touch down, mm-hmm. and then talk to as
1: them. you're exiting the runway. Um, depending on what runway you land on. A normal day at San Fran is we'll land the two eights and we'll depart the ones. And and for those of you who don't know, the runway numbers are basically magnetic headings. Right. That's all it is. So if you're landing the two eights, if you're landing two eight left, if you're assuming for for the sake of this conversation and today's discussion, if you're an airline, if you're an air carrier, you're going to turn left, you're going to contact ground. And then ground will taxi you into wherever you go to park. If you land on two eight right. It's still the tower. It, it's everybody knows it as tower control. We know it as local control. So you've got local, you've got ground, and then you've got clearance delivery, which is whoever's issuing the clearances to the traffic that's departing. So basically, if you land two eight right, you'll turn onto it, or you'll turn off on two eight right. Usually, you'll hold short of two eight left because there's an arriving aircraft. Once that airplane's clear, you'll cross and then contact ground.
2: And so. With those various roles, mm-hmm. uh, just in San Francisco Tower, do you only do one type? You No.
1: The the training, so San Fran, I got, I think, I, I was told that if you're doing really, really well, you, you can certify in about a year at San Fran from start to finish. It took me about a year and three months to get through it. Nice. To,
2: do, to do all of them? To do everything. So
1: basically, the way that training works is when you first get there, you, you do about, Three to four weeks downstairs, and you have to memorize the approaches. You got to memorize the departures. You got to memorize the frequencies, the fixes. If you don't already know them, so local airports. um, Oh, let's see what else. Nav aids, all that stuff. So you got to know everything for the Greater West Coast is what they want you to know.
2: And so you have to. So when you go into work uh, on a morning or evening, will you know? forgive me for not knowing the, the mm. kind of terms will you know what station you were doing whether you're doing ground well what or-
1: the way it works is once you're fully certified so for, to answer to finish your question for the training process you'll start on clearance delivery okay. and that is where you start your training once you go upstairs into the tower and all you're doing there is you're either sending the clearances electronically or reading to reading them to the pilots verbally right so then once you certify in that position then you'll move to ground. At San Fran, depending on the type of traffic that we're running and how busy it is, you're either going to have one ground, which it's one guy controlling all the ground traffic for San Fran, or we split it. And then half of the airport gets divided to one ground controller, and then they opened up a second position, and that uh, ground controller works the other half. And they literally just cut the airport down to center.
2: Because
1: huh. it's just, you know, what, San Fran, because it's so tight and it gets really complex, sometimes it's advantageous for safety purposes and for the controller's well-being. And, uh, whatever else you want to call it, it's better off to just split it. Cause you know, you can divide that workload. So then you'll certify on ground. And then there's another position, which we call local assist position, which is basically we'll do coordination with outside facilities for the local controller. And again, the local controller is a tower controller. So they're running the traffic that's in the air and landing and departing on the runways. So then you'll certify in that radar position and then you'll certify, and you're not actually working radar traffic. So it's, We technically call it a local assist position because you're assisting the local controller. And then uh, once you certify on that, you train on that one and local at the same time, but you'll certify on the the local assist position first. And then once you get done, you'll certify on the local control position.
2: And how much of it is... Looking at a screen versus Very looking little. out the window.
1: Very little. It, it. You know, when I meet people, they automatically say, oh, you're the guy in the dark room staring at the radar. No, I'm not. <laughs> there, are other, there, there are other people that do that. That's the approach in the en route facilities. And in our situation, that's NorCal approach and uh, or NorCal TRACON, as we call it, and then Oakland Center. Those are the guys who... Um, do all that. I'm in a tower. I'm overlooking the airport. I could see the sun. I could see basically everything. But that's, that's how you do your degrees.
2: job, is looking out the window yeah. and not at a screen.
1: Yeah. We, we do have, we have a ground surveillance radar, which will show all the aircraft moving on the ground. And then we have a, uh, a regular radar, which shows all the aircraft that are that are in the air. And that basically ends up, we usually look about 20 miles just to see what's coming and what's going mm you know. Amazing. Yeah. So, so from a tower standpoint, um, you're looking down a little bit, but you're looking outside most
2: of the time. That's really interesting. I assumed it was the other way around. Yeah, it's, it's really not. <laughs> That's great though. That's nice. Yeah. It, there's, there's something quite romantic about that. Yeah. Um, so how did you get to where you are? I mean, how did you get, how did you first become a, an air traffic controller? Once you'd finished the training, how did you get your first, posting, and
0: then how did you get to... Well, my, my story dad uh, Hold on. Dan, Dan, hold on. Uh-huh. Maybe maybe before you answer that, why? Because, yeah. I mean, how do we, <laughs> How do insane. you wake up one day and say, I'm going to be ATC? You know, before actually, you know, I don't know. Well, if, if,
1: if you had if you had looked at me, because I started working in aviation in 1996, if somebody would have looked at me in 1996 and said, oh, by the way, Dan, you're going to be an air traffic controller, I would have laughed. <laughs> because I'd, I never thought about it. I mean, my father was a pilot. With me, it was always flying or maintenance or something like that, something ground oriented, you know, and basically this is a true story. So my best friend who runs the fuel company at the San Carlos airport, which I worked at for nine years prior to joining the FAA, he comes up to me one day and it's a hot summer day, right? And I'm working on a couple airplanes, uh, just detailing them and stuff. Cause at the time I was managing airplanes, he comes up to me and he goes, Hey, he goes, uh, the FAA is hiring for air traffic controllers. And I kind of looked at him and I'm kind of like, Okay, you know, and And he li- looked at me true statement. He looks at me and he goes, "Well, what better guy to sit in a tower, drink coffee and tell people what to do? <laughs> this, is, this is honest to God what he said to me. So I called my fa- so, so I kind of thought about it and I kind of shrugged my shoulders. I'm like, well, yeah, you know I could tell people what to do. I mean, why not? So I called my father, who was retired by this point, And I bounced it off him because I always call my parents, you know, I I always bounce stuff like that off my off my folks. And I called my dad and I said, so my buddy just told me about this, told him the story. And I said, well, what do you think? And he basically says to me, he goes, well, what the hell do you have to lose? Mm -hmm. You know, and and I was highly successful in what I did in in the private sector, you know, and and so I'm like, OK. So I end up driving over to the Oakland Airport because they were having an open hiring process at a hotel by the airport and I showed up literally in jeans and or shorts and a t-shirt because I was working on an airplane at the time. And this was like the last day of the open hiring. So I walk in and I hand the girl from HR, my resume and I didn't even know if I was qualified. I never went to college. You know, ever since I graduated high school, I basically went, I was working in aviation through high school. And then I just continued it full time. and never went to college or did anything like that. And, um, she looked at me and, uh,
0: she,
1: well <laughs> yeah they all laugh when they look at me but um she said well yeah you know she goes you've got she, you've got the work experience and, and and i was just fortunate in the fact that i have aviation background the faa does hire people that don't have aviation background i will comment to, as to whether it's advantageous or not because there are colleges that actually have programs now structured towards air traffic control degrees oh interesting yeah they actually have those now And a lot of people internally in the FAA view, I'm considered what they call an off the street hire because I don't, I never went to college for air traffic. Um, I'm just one of the, I'm technically considered an off the street hire, but I'm just kind of an oddity because I actually have background in the business, you know? So I got into it. And when I interviewed, you know, you got to do a background check. You got to do a security check. You got to take a physical And, uh, I mean, obviously my background check was clean, you know, I don't have a criminal background, never been to jail. Um, I'm not on the Megan's law website or anything like that. And they, you know, and, and, you know, so, I mean, this is all stuff that they check and 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 rightfully so. Yeah, absolutely. So basically they asked me after all this, they said, well, are you okay? You know, going to Palo Alto. So Palo Alto is a small airport that is South of San Francisco by about, I'd say about 20 miles. And uh, at one point, I was told that Palo Alto is the busiest single runway airport in the nation.
2: Which is amazing considering it has no scheduled traffic.
1: No scheduled traffic. It's all GA stuff. And, and Palo Alto is, uh, it's a very busy airport and it was a great for its facility. You know, so I spent about three years at Palo Alto. Oh, well, once I actually got hired, um, I had to do three months in Oklahoma City for training. And uh, that's where the FAA Academy is, and they put you through a classroom thing, which is you know uh, a couple weeks, and then or a, I should say I don't, I forget now because it's been so long, but you basically go through a classroom, and then you go through like a simulator type thing. And at the time, they were just introducing these three hundred and sixty oh, degree cool. simulators. So to the air traffic. W-
2: when you finished that training, could they have sent you anywhere in the country? Yes. And it was and it was luck that you got Palo Alto. Uh,
1: I don't know if I call it luck, but I came back to the Bay Area. I, when I got hired with the FAA, I was hoping to go out of state. I wanted out of California. Mm. And are you sure you're not insane? Oh, I'm definitely <laughs> insane. <laughs> But I wanted out of California. I wanted to go somewhere else. And when you get in with the FAA, I mean, there's people that I know that went to Puerto Rico. There's oh, one. Wow, there's people cool. that that grew up in Pennsylvania that are out in Hawaii. You know, I mean, I mentioned a guy earlier. I worked with us from New Orleans. He was from the military, but he came here and now he's trying to get back to. I mean, you can go anywhere, right? You know, assuming there's a spot and they pick you up, you can move anywhere.
2: That's neat. So
1: I think from a training standpoint, it was easier for me because I obviously knew the aircraft because I've worked on 3 quarters of them and I right. you know I know my airplanes obviously the other thing is that I knew all the fixes I knew most of the airways I knew some of the approaches into the local airports just because I've I've flown in and out of them so much so I just got lucky I got back to Palo Alto I did 3 years of Palo Alto I'm going on 4 years of San Fran
2: so how much of a step up you know realistically speaking was it to go from Palo Alto, which is, you know, a busy but small airport. Too. It's, a, it's a huge step. Really? Oh, it's brutal. Was it intimidating? It's extremely intimidating. The thing, the thing,
1: the difference between, at least for me, my biggest challenge personally, I went from Palo Alto, which had large quantities of traffic, but it was fairly easy because it's all VFR, nothing, you know, the, the separation rules essentially were all the same. To go into a place like San Fran and San Fran is a very complex airport. It is extremely complex. Mm. And it's that. So when I got to San Fran, the quantity of aircraft didn't intimidate me, but the rules that you had to use, because depending on what you're doing, there's a certain. So everything we do in air traffic, there's a rule. Everything is based off rules. So if I'm doing one thing, I'm using this type of separation. If I'm doing another thing, it's this type of separation. There's and, and there's there's very little gray area.
2: I guess everything is moving at least twice the speed. Yeah, as well. Yeah.
1: No, yeah. I, generally speaking. Yeah. You know, yeah. everything moves faster. There's more rules. You have to work quicker. You have to think faster. And that was, I think, my biggest thing was thinking faster and just the sheer complex of San Fran, because depending, you know, certain taxiways, like uh, I'll show you if you ever come to San Fran, but basically we have a dia- an airport diagram. And in reference to the A380, There are certain things that we can and cannot do with the A380 because of the sheer size of the airplane. And that's dictated by the FAA, you know, because San Fran, like I said, we don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of room to work. So depending on where the A380 is, we can, we can use certain runways. We cannot use others. Oh,
2: so it's not just getting the A380 from point A to B. It's getting everything... Around, around the it. A3, <laughs>
1: wow, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, everything, everything is rules, and there's certain things you can do here. There's certain things you can't do here. Your limitations. San Fran, also, I mean, you know, busy airport, and I'm sure Heathrow has the same thing. There's always closures. They're always closing taxiways. Once in a while, they're closing a runway because they got to paint. They got to do rubber removal on the runways. I mean, it's 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 the variables, you know, and it's being able to process those variables, and work around it instantaneously.
2: And, of course, the weather in San and, and the
1: weather in San Francisco is always a problem, you know.
2: So you were, uh, if I'm right in saying, you were working when the AG on a 777 crashed. Is that right?
1: I got to work right after. Uh, basically, I was called in right after it crashed. Oh. So I didn't. I didn't actually see it happen. But you I had was, to
2: deal with the aftermath.
1: Yeah, we had to, I, I went in and as I jokingly say, because I have a morbid sense of humor, I was the one who had to go in and clean up the mess. Right.
2: <laughs> but it was, so if you're not familiar <laughs> with what happened, an <clears throat> Asiana 777 basically came in short of the runway and and sadly two people died as a result. But um, it closed the airport for how long? Or did it not close the airport? Just no, the, it co-
1: the airport was closed. Uh
2: I think it was about four or five hours. We were actually shut down. So what do you, what did you have to? I mean, if you're allowed to talk about it, what mm-hmm. did you have? What did you do? Well, like you had planes coming from all over the world, intending to go to San Francisco. What what happens? What do you, what did you? That,
1: from a, from our standpoint, there's not a whole lot that we did. I mean, at that point, airplanes were diverting to Oakland and San Jose, or depending on where they were going. Some of them, I guess, were diverting to Sacramento. But I think, uh, from what I was told Oakland and San Jose got the majority of the, of the diversions. Um, and, and that, you know, I give credit to NorCal and Oakland center because when that happened, you know, the, the airport shut down. So we all, we, you know, we didn't do a whole lot. We were doing some coordination with other facilities and we were coordinating with some emergency efforts and, um, You know, people, you know, news media and stuff that wanted to come into the airspace. We weren't letting them in. Mm. So we still had some work to do. It wasn't just sitting there with coffee cups, not doing anything. But then
2: I suppose you have to, once the airport reopened, you had a backlog of flights to get in the air.
1: Yeah, we had airplanes to get out. We had airplanes to land. And from what I remember, we were, I mean, it's been a while now. Um, From what I remember, we were landing and departing on one runway or two runways.
2: Goodness. As opposed to four. As
1: opposed to four. So it was slow for a couple days. And and I got to tell you, just on a quick side note, I had a chance to go down and walk around that accident scene on Sunday because this happened on a Sunday. I actually had the chance to go down and walk around it on Sunday. And um, if there's anybody in the world that ever had a doubt about a Boeing product, and I'm sure nobody doesn't, but maybe there are people that do. I don't know. If anybody ever had a doubt about a Boeing product, I wish I could have walked them around that scene because the stuff that that airplane withstood, I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, you got to keep in mind, the airplane basically cartwheeled. So that that sheet metal was bent, buckled, torn, ripped. Mm. But at the end of the day, both the wings were still attached. And the only reason the tail came off was because the airplane hit the seawall. Right. That That airplane withstood so much damage and it was still in one piece.
2: And yeah,
1: that's it. It is is absolutely incredible what that airplane was. It really is. Oh,
2: that's amazing. Yeah, it it,
1: it was, you know, it was an unfortunate situation and and nobody wants to go through something like that. Of course. And with my background and everything else that I've seen, you know, some people were pretty, pretty shaken up by it. I'm just one of those people that I I really don't uh, get. Emotional about what I do, I think over time because there were years that I was averaging one funeral a year with somebody I knew that uh, crashed in aviation.
2: Mm.
1: I average at least one funeral a year. Wow! So I, I I don't. I think I've done very good at. You just don't. You don't. I, I think to a point you kind of internalize it. Right.
2: I guess you have to separate it. You have to,
1: and and that's that's part of what. We do, you know, other people, it affects differently. Everybody handles it differently, you know, and there were some people that were out on uh, some, what what we call trauma leave after Asiana and rightfully so, right? you know, I mean, everybody, like I said, everybody deals with it differently. Everybody processes yeah, the information separately. And, um, you know, a lot of people talked about it. Um, I just, I
0: have, I have the yeah, an amazing probably, ability yeah. to it's just kind of shut tool, it off. Yeah. I fully understand because uh, my, fa- it's still a different, uh, different my father is totally different different background and my father was a surgeon. He mm-hmm. always told me oh, uh, wow. that when he was do- when he was doing a surgery, he was not looking at a person at that moment. he was looking at a body because if yeah. he started to be too emotional that he would actually <laughs> make a mistake. I it completely agree.
1: A- when I'm talking to the pilots, I don't look at it like oh, I've got 200 people with- whose lives are in my hands and, it, and it's yeah, I do. But I don't look at it that way. No, it's to me, not it's just it, to me, that. it's just a job, you know. And, and the same thing, like you were saying about your father,
0: you know. I, I mean, the job is the job. Just, uh, just one question out of curiosity uh-huh. how do you re- how do you remove a plane that crashed from a runway? That's a very good question. They had to. Uh, I think they ended up cutting
1: it up, or that you know, okay. you know what they did. They removed the wings. They had to. They had to drain. They had to drain all the fuel from the wings and the fuselage tank. But I think the fuselage tank was almost empty. Mm. It should have been yeah, by the coming, time, coming, from yeah, coming all course, the way yeah. from,
2: Korea, yeah, from yeah. Korea.
1: So they ended up taking off the wings and then they actually had a bunch of cranes and they hoisted the fuselage up onto a flatbed and removed it that way. Wow. And then they brought it to a far end of the airport. And Where they, it sat
2: uh, for a long time. It
1: sat for a long time because the wrecking company, I think took a while to come in and get it out of there.
2: It was a pretty strange sight to see for certainly when I came that summer, you could see from, uh, from that, basically, when you landed, you would go past this yeah. this wrecked fuselage with some of the some of the
0: titles sprayed out. Yeah. Um, uh, may I, May May interject one question. Sure. I I know it's a bit uh, because it, it relates a bit to what the incident that happened at uh, with Asiana. Uh, do do you have to deal a lot with any? Don't worry if you don't want to answer because it's too. <laughs> but do you have to deal a lot with uh, language issues uh, with people the, maybe that this, <clears throat> the the, the yes. not good enough English?
1: Yeah. In, in aviation, <clears throat> English is the universal language. That doesn't mean they speak it well.
2: <laughs> that must present some challenges.
1: That that has got a lot of challenges. And, and you got to keep in mind, there are certain things that um, we call a mandatory readbacks. Alex, you know, as a pilot, there's certain, or you should know as a pilot. And if not, <laughs> you and I are going to take a walk after this. But there are certain things that air traffic control has to get readbacks on like runway, hold short instructions, altitude restrictions, stuff like that. Certain things the pilot has to read back. And not only is the, um, the English language, some difficult for some people to understand, very thick accents. I mean, we get all sorts of air carriers that come in, you know, we're in
0: a national airport. Mm. Yeah. That's why. that's why I'm asking yeah. you because you have a very good coverage. Yeah. You.
1: And, and some, some, um, Airlines are very difficult to understand some pilots. You could tell that that fly for foreign carriers, they have done a tremendous job to take the efforts to make themselves very clear on the radio, which is, which we appreciate, you know, cause you got to keep in mind, it's all, I mean, you're trusting a voice, just like you guys are talking to me. I mean, you know, when this, when this gets aired, all people are going to know is my voice. Right. They're never going to know who I am. <laughs> right. You know, so it's, 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 it's like my father put it. It's that blind trust. You're trusting the voice. And if anybody ever listens to LiveATC.net, which I'm not plugging by any means, but, a great, it, but, a great but everybody seems to listen to it. Yeah. If you ever listen to San Fran and you hear a controller, when they frequency change somebody, they say, have fun. That's me.
2: Oh, so there you go. That's <laughs> you a go. great little tip. <laughs> if you ever
1: hear anybody say, hey, have fun, that's usually me talking.
2: Nice. So I'll have to listen for yeah. that. Um, I'm curious if you have as a controller Mm -hmm. a favorite plane that's just you know this is going to be great because it's this type of airplane that performs well it's off the runway quickly the wake turbulence for whatever reason you might have from a from a controller standpoint um
1: and what we do at san fran almost any boeing product we love why they move fast the 737 and this all gets into aircraft performance the 737 900 which is the big 73 they roll like a pig. They're slow mm. to get moving because you got to keep in mind, like Alex mentioned, mentioned earlier, we land two runways and in between the arrivals, we're departing.
2: Uh, so that t- so we're shooting.
1: We're essentially shooting the gap. That right?
2: speed is important to you. So
1: when we say clear for takeoff, you know, a lot of times we're pushing these guys along and we're, we have the, we have the phraseology to get them to move faster. And sometimes like the seven thirty nine hundreds, they don't roll fast, but once they get airborne, they're fast in the upwind mm. seven fives are awesome airplanes. I, the 7.5 is an awesome airplane because they roll quick. And there's a lot of guys that do the overseas routes. I mean, we've seen 7.4s move fast, fully loaded to Heathrow. If the pilot knows the flick and he's got the show, which three quarters of the seven, of the 747 pilots out of San Fran, they do, they can move. Wow. <laughs> so that from an air traffic standpoint, anything that any Boeing product, I would say,
2: at least for me, I, I love them. So that. I guess on the on the uh departures that's one thing but on the approaches I suppose these new bigger airplanes need more time between the plane behind them which Yeah, just, that's
1: all wake turbulence. Right. And that's all mandated. I mean all that's set up to us, you know, with all the all the good work that Norcal does.
2: I see. You know? Okay, so, so it's less of a problem for you it just is what it is. Yeah. It it's is interesting. It and
1: so, a lot of that separation is built in um Sometimes there's actually added separation, which is a letter of agreement between us and NorCal, because we need time to get the airplane out the gap between the arrivals, between yes. the sets of arrivals. Wow, it's
0: it's just it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> would you, uh, besides besides the fact that it's a it's a personal choice, uh-huh. would there be any other airports in the U.S. that you would really love to experience as a air traffic controller? You know, I don't know. That's a
1: good question. I haven't, I haven't given it a whole lot of thought, only because um, I've got, I've got a lot of time left before I can retire, and I don't know what's going to happen between now and again. I, and I think that's, that's one of the benefits, in my opinion, for working from the FAA is, you know, if I got to, if I decided, yeah, I want to go try JFK. If I can get picked up there, I can move to the East Coast.
2: Wow, that's cool. I
1: have that flexibility with my personal life, you know, and the fact that I'm, you know, I, I don't have a wife and kids or anything like that. So from my standpoint, I can go anywhere. You know, there was actually one guy that left the FAA to go work for, uh, uh, he went to go work in Australia.
2: Oh, neat so that's an option too
1: that's an option too i wouldn't do that i don't have any desire to move overseas i wouldn't mind visiting like but you'd I, have- like i keep bugging alex about <laughs> yeah. but um you know i i think uh you know i wouldn't mind phoenix maybe down in arizona ah, but, but perfect yeah but see my intentions are different because i like golf <laughs> and and i like warm weather so for me and my father lives down there as well so for me Something like that isn't bad. I mean, I'll probably have a chance to go and visit O'Hare soon in Chicago, and that is interesting to me. But I don't know if I'd want to do that every day. There was a guy that went down. I haven't talked to him, but he left uh, San Fran and he went to go work at LAX. And from what I've heard, LAX is just—it's chaos, one hundred percent. I bet them. it it's is. Just nuts. I bet it is. I say chaos, and to me that probably has a slightly different meaning than other people (laughs) you know because everything you know everything we do is controlled believe me nothing we do is unsafe and um but i i don't know as far as other airports i'm kind of i don't know i'm kind of like well let's see what happens today kind of thing yeah that's
0: a good way of looking at it yeah yeah well that's that's fun paul any other any further questions no, no, I was just wondering, coming back to, you said, the speed, because you mentioned the speed at which uh, mm-hmm. aircraft moved, uh, do you ever have to, and I guess maybe, I, I have really no clue, do you ever have to manage that, like, you really want one to move, and the plane just doesn't, for some reason, and then that backs up everything, and you have yeah. to, you know, think like like a chessboard, like, think yep. many steps ahead into, okay, this guy is not moving, so that... Changes the plan for everything else.
1: Basically, that's exactly what happens. I mean, sometimes you know we have certain phraseology that we could use to get pilots to move quicker, to start the departure roll, or you know soon, don't delay, you know things like that. Same thing with arrivals. If they're if they're landing, we tell them best speed through the ones or something like that, which is the intersecting runways. And sometimes you know you're running. I'm not going to say, I say, you know, if you're running them tight, but tight to us is different because our separation standards, you know, you got to do something really wrong if you're going to really run a close call. Mm. Um, And the way it works at San Fran basically is um, the arriving aircraft, or I should, I should put it this way. The departing aircraft has to be through the arrival runway before the arrival aircraft crosses the approach end.
2: I see. Oh, well.
1: so there, Definitely. and that's, oh, I don't know, maybe 5,000 feet.
2: So, yeah, okay. How you know, so,
1: so if that's not going to happen, then we have other things that we have to do. But to answer your question, if something happens and we're trying to run a play a certain way, we're trying to get things done one way, and it doesn't work because either the aircraft doesn't roll fast or maybe they abort the takeoff for safety reasons or something like that, mechanical failure, then we automatically reevaluate and you form a new plan. Wow. You know?
2: That, takes, that feels like it takes a certain type <clears throat> of personality to be it able does. to do that.
1: Ba- basically what happens is everything that we do um, you have to have like a plan B, a plan C, and sometimes a plan yeah. D because you just never know <laughs> right. if plan A and B going to Crapper,
0: you know? So you, you, you keep saying we. How many of you are in the tower at the same time? So no- we, we run a minimum of
1: six in the tower at one time.
0: And, and you, you each have like you said you might d- divide uh, the the the, yeah. um, the field in two but so do you work with with each other you have to talk to each other is it like you have this is my aircraft and that's it We can we no
1: we literally we will be talking to aircraft sometimes depending on what's going on we may be coordinating with somebody outside Because we have remote towers. We have contract uh, companies that actually come in. There's three remote towers at San Fran and they run areas of the airport that we can't physically see right now. Mm. Uh So sometimes you're coordinating with them. Sometimes you're coordinating with another controller who's standing next to you or maybe 10, 15 feet away. And the other variable too is once you're fully certified, you do some time as a certified controller and then you start training.
2: So you're working in training.
1: So you're working in training. So literally what you've got is you've got two sets of headset jacks similar to like what you and I have now, and you're plugged in with me. And if you do something wrong, I can override you. Wow. And that is basically part of the job description that we have to do. You don't have to, but especially the younger generation, like you're training, mm-hmm. there's no choice around it, you know? So sometimes it's multitasking, right? So at the end of the day, I can listen to my trainee I can know what's going on on ground control, assuming I'm training on ground. I can hear to what the local controller is saying to the airplanes he's talking to. And I can hear a conversation going on in the back of the room. Wow. And that takes time to develop. I would imagine. That takes time to develop, especially because as a trainee, I mean, your head is spinning so fast and you're trying to process so much information, you know, that you're not... uh, you're barely paying attention to what your instructor's telling you to do half the time, Wow! you know, let alone everything. So so far. it really is. It's multitasking. It's three-dimensional thinking. It's planning ahead, you know. Um, and on top of that, you're running all the variables. Amazing. You know, so all of a sudden a guy doesn't, you know, a guy's not moving as fast as you want. Or you taxi in a guy to the runways for takeoff and he doesn't go the route that you want. I mean, this, this, and this, people think that everything just happens textbook in internet traffic. Uh-uh. It never works out. Nothing. <laughs> you can run this is the cool part about the job is we could have two, we could go in a simulator and have two I in two um, identical scenarios. and I could run them one way, you could run them another that and we could run them totally different, but the outcome could still be the same. right. So then it comes down to what was more efficient. It's never perfect, at least how I view it personally. It's never perfect and it could always be better. But at the end of the day,
0: the, the result, the same result was achieved.
2: Hmm.
0: You know, does it, does it happen often that you said the bad route is being taken by an aircraft? All the time. Oh
1: yeah, exactly. It, it never, it never fails. Because like, um, your
2: instructions yeah. could be perfect and that's, that's not, that's only half of the part, right? The, the, instructions, how instructions, the are instructions
1: you give the pilots could be perfect. Their read back to you could be perfect.
2: But what they do is... But what
1: they do could be totally different. <laughs> and and, and, and that's, that's a variable in it. Right. But that's part of our job. You know, yeah. that's part of our job is it, it's, you know, it's knowing, okay, well, you know, I told him to hold short of only one left. I hope it does. <laughs> you know and 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 that's why you know there's one thing between the tapes being clean and that's what we call that like a good read back um which means the tapes are clean phraseology is correct tapes are clean you know good read back stuff like that and then it's another thing to actually do it right and 99 percent of the time yeah it's good as far as people screwing up taxi routes oh yeah all the time (laughs) but san fran and san fran it's a tough airport you know if you're if you're on the ground navigating san fran i mean it's tough. Yeah. You know, if you start looking at airport diagrams for O'Hare, JFK, I haven't seen um, Heathrow, but I know it's huge. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's a lot. And there's a lot that they, you know. throw an A380 the, the, in
2: the mix. So yeah, like,
1: throw an <laughs> A380 in the mix and start closing runways and taxiways and goodness. stuck mics. We get that all the time. Stuck mic. Stuck mics. Um, in, the, in the cockpit, you know, this push-to-talk switch. Sometimes they'll stick. And the aircraft will keep transmitting on the frequency and the pilots won't know it.
2: Oh, no. How embarrassing. So if
1: I've got 10 aircraft, oh, yeah, it's even embarrassing when they say stuff that they shouldn't be saying. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, sometimes you'll get stuck mics and um, the air traffic radios are stronger in, I think it's wattage. The, The wattage is stronger so we can overpower them. And nine times out of 10, the other airplanes will hear us. But then you're trying to switch everybody over to alternate frequencies to do that. So, I mean, it's it's constantly, it's <laughs> literally, it's controlled chaos. You, you show up to work every day and you think, well, what's going to happen today?
0: Wow. <laughs> you know,
1: it's fun stuff, though.
0: Yeah, it keeps it interesting, I'm sure. It does.
1: There's never a dull
0: moment. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah, it doesn't never a like there moment.
0: would be. Wow. Well, okay. Dan, thank you. Thank so you much, guys. yeah. That, was awesome. So, yeah, that was awesome. nobody fell asleep. Oh. No, God. I, no, is, no, no. Don't worry about that. Oh, that was awesome. Fascinating. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, am am like a kid listening to you. You yeah. <laughs> yeah, me. I'm sure that I, I'm sure there's some kind of video game when you can do that. I should try to. Yeah, find I'm sure. Uh, there's actually.
1: Uh, we were joking about it earlier. There's? there's apps. Are there? Yeah, there's apps on the phone where you can. I mean, it's you know, it's to me, it's a game. It's like, yeah, okay, but you can you know go and control airplanes on your on your iPhone or your your Android or whatever you have. How and, funny is that. And people talk about how great they are. Because I've heard people I've met over time, you just in casual conversation. Oh well I've got this game
0: mastered. And I go, Oh yeah? Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Come on. <laughs> Let's see what you really got. <laughs>
0: Wow! <laughs> thank you, Dan. It was really amazing. Uh, thank you, guys, for listening. Uh, you can listen to the full uh, podcast episodes that is Flight uh, 009 to Phoenix. Uh, it's available on iTunes and all the streams where the podcast is broadcasted. And uh, we see you next week. Bye. On behalf of layovers and the entire crew, we'd like to thank you for joining us on this podcast, and we are looking forward to seeing you on board again next week. Flight attendants,
1: please prepare for landing.